welcome to E-Commerce Innovators, a podcast that brings together the brightest minds in the industry to explore innovative strategies and trends in global e-commerce. Our host is John LeBaron, Chief Revenue Officer at Pattern, the premier partner for global e-commerce acceleration. Welcome everyone to the show today. My name is John LeBaron. I am the Chief Revenue Officer of Pattern and I'm the host of this e-commerce innovators podcast. Today we are joined by Sally Matthews, who is the Chief Product Officer at Gusto, and they are based out of the UK. Tell us a little bit more about Gusto, Sally. Um, so Gusto is a recipe kit company. So we deliver all of the ingredients to make delicious, healthy meals at home in a way that is very convenient, very sustainable. And we really differentiate versus other recipe kits through the sheer amount of choice that we offer to our customers. Wonderful. So for those listeners, and I'm guessing many of our listeners today are based here in the United States, no stranger to all the different subscription type offerings here. And uh, there are pet subscriptions, there are apparel subscriptions, there are grocery subscriptions. Tell us a little bit more about the subscription economy in the UK. Sure. I mean, I think, I guess, much like the States, there has been a proliferation of subscription businesses over the years. But I think when you think about recipe kits, I think they have much more kind of their power to succeed in the subscription space because people have to eat every week. So it's not like a nice to have. And I think even within food, you get some subscription businesses like snacks that perhaps don't have the same kind of retention, but you definitely need to eat dinner, even if you don't eat snacks, which makes that kind of subscription model work really well in this area. Yeah, I love it. So Sally, as the Chief Product Officer, tell us a little bit more about where your remit kind of starts and ends, because I can kind of think about, you know, you've got the website, you've got the actual, you know, recipes and all the delivery and the experience of the customers. Are you over all of that or a piece of it? Tell us a little bit more about how that works. Sure. So I think product at Gusto is quite unique because we are both a retailer and a brand. We're obviously online, but we have a physical product. It's a subscription. It's the service. So it's a bit of everything. I tend to think of my role as covering everything that's trying to make sure that our customers have the best possible customer experience. So that starts with strategy and insight, making sure that I deeply understand what it is that our customers want from the product. It includes the teams that are designing the amazing recipes and then working out what to put on the menu in a given week and ensure that that's both commercially viable, but also in a great variety for our customers. It includes the sourcing of ingredients, so the kind of buying and then the supply chain element to ensure that we get them to the door of the factory and making sure that those ingredients are really high quality, that there aren't any kind of issues with them, that they're sustainable and that we're working with the right suppliers. And then it also includes thinking about the future. So thinking about future factories, when do we need to build a factory? How big does it need to be? And how can we build it in a way that makes sure our customers have the best possible customer experience? So building it to be able to deliver in line with those insights I mentioned at the beginning to make sure that customers, I guess, are just really getting a a fantastic customer experience. I think the final thing to note is although it's a food product, there's a lot of things that sit around that. So how the product is packaged, making sure that that's really sustainable, how it's priced, like how the subscription works, how we think about loyalty. So really anything that makes sure the customers are having a great customer experience. Yeah, I love that. Well, there must be... I mean, you've been there five years, roughly. Yeah, coming up to six now. 
Amazing. So there must have been a lot of innovation because there's been a lot of innovation in the space as a whole. There must have been a lot of innovation in the product and the company. And as you talked about kind of this cycle of hearing customer feedback or getting these inputs and then kind of putting them through the whole cycle to monetize it, to figure out loyalty, to figure out acquisition, all those different areas. I'm excited to get into this and, and learn a little bit more. Maybe let's just take a step back though and figure out how you got here because you have a very interesting background. And you mentioned this earlier, like we're a retailer, we're a brand, we're also a tech company, you know, like all these different kind of pieces. And if you look at the mosaic of your career and the arc that you've taken, I think there are a lot of interesting things that led up to this that you probably were not planning on. But you have a background in finance. Tell us about how you kind of got started and some of the stops that you've made along the way. I'm sure. So I think I've always just been interested, I guess, in kind of numbers. And so finance was a natural thing to do out of university. I qualified with one of the large accounting firms, which was called Arthur Anderson. No longer exist, but they were kind of a successful, well-known accounting company at the time. (laughs) I then went on to work for a number of like, I guess, very large businesses. And if I'm really honest, it hadn't occurred to me to work in a kind of small startup. And I worked in a number of different finance roles. But what they kind of, I guess, all brought to Gusto were... So firstly, I worked for a number of years for the AA, which is a breakdown company similar to AAA in the States. And because that's a subscription business, it's all about thinking about lifetime values, cost of acquisition, acquiring customers and then retaining them. I then worked for a number of years for Tesco.com. So thinking about how you can pick and pack groceries and get them to customers' homes profitably. And then I also briefly worked for Unilever, which is obviously thinking about the brand and, you know, really innovating um, amazing customer products. So all of those things just happened to come together uh, to fit perfectly with what Gusto does. And I was introduced to Timo, the founder of Gusto through Unilever Ventures, who was one of the venture capital backers of Gusto. And as I said, I'd always worked in large businesses. But when I met Timo, he was incredibly inspirational. And I could see that what he was building really met with customer needs. And I could also see that it could be economically sustainable and profitable in a way that most traditional supermarket models really struggle to make grocery home delivery work. So I was really excited. I was excited by the culture, by the product, by what was being built. And so I kind of made that leap. Uh, to what was at the time a tiny business that would have been considered a bit of a rounding error at Unilever or Tesco, but was so exciting and had so much opportunity. And so joined as the CFO and I spent the first half of my time here building the finance team. So taking it from a team of two to a much larger team, professionalizing it, bringing in analytics, legal, and kind of taking it to, I guess, like the standard that you need for a growing business. And then a few years ago, moved across to look after the product remit, which is what I've been doing for the last few years. Yeah, amazing. And when you were kind of, I guess, tapped on the shoulder to switch roles, obviously a fairly new function, maybe it felt somewhat organic at that point. You knew the business, you knew the inner workings, you kind of knew the roadmap. I don't know if there was a chief product officer before you or if it just kind of grew. Was that something you were you know, kind of asking for or looking for? Was it something that you just kind of fell into? Was it something someone asked you to go do? Tell us a little bit more about that transition. Sure. So I think in my career previously, whether that was at kind of Tesco or the AA or such like, in large companies, it was very normal to switch roles every couple of years and to kind of always have that opportunity to grow. And perhaps it's less obvious in a smaller company, but it's kind of natural in me to always want to be kind of learning and growing and doing new things. 
And I wasn't really thinking or planning uh, to move into the product role, but we'd interviewed a lot of people to come and be chief product officer. And what we were finding with lots of people with really big, crazy, innovative ideas, which was fantastic, but we already had lots of big, crazy, (laughs) innovative ideas. Those were easy, right? (laughs) (laughs) What we really needed was for somebody to think really kind of analytically about which things would have the biggest customer impact, prioritize them, and then execute and make them happen. And that really fitted with my skill set. And then I think from a kind of, I guess, motivation perspective, Although finance is like, you know, a fantastic area to work, you are always to some extent watching from the sidelines and kind of trying to encourage everybody to take things in a certain direction. But really, really great to be able to get that kind of full ownership for making things happen. I think the other thing to note is whilst it seems like quite a different role, actually at this level in an organization, so much of the role is about leadership. And it's about kind of asking the right questions and kind of helping the teams and growing the teams. And so that really didn't change whether I was the CFO or the CPO. And, you know, I I can't do some of the, I guess, like most junior tasks in finance, like posting a journal. And I can't do some of the things like developing recipes. I'd like no idea, but you don't really need to necessarily be able to do all those things to be able to help lead the team that do them. I love that. Man, there's so much we can kind of dive into. I am a total neophyte when it comes to the food service industry or food in general or grocery or and like that's not my background at all. So I kind of think, again, as an outsider looking in, I mean, let's start on the kind of the P&L and the finance side of things, right? Like you've got spoilage, you've got to figure out how to source super high quality things. It's like perishable stuff and it has to stay probably refrigerated or frozen or something. Like walk us through kind of the evolution or the innovation that you've seen in the business from a kind of cost slash value equation. I mean, I guess you'd had some experience in retailing and grocery and things like that. So you're probably kind of familiar with it. But what are maybe what are some of the things that surprised you along the way and some things that you've been able to do innovate that other people might be like, oh, I didn't even know you would be able to do that or be able to like afford that or get derive the right value equation. Thought it'd be too tricky. Tell us some of the innovation you guys have have innovated there. Sure. So, I mean, I think there are a few things that are structurally different between supermarkets and meal kit, which mean that kind of this innovative model just can be inherently more profitable. And so a few things to kind of note. So firstly, the actual number of different SKUs that you need to list is not that high. And it can make lots of different recipes in lots of different combinations. So when you compare that to a traditional supermarket or an online supermarket, who will have 30, 40, 50,000 SKUs, the actual supply chain becomes much, much more efficient. It's also going straight from the supplier to our factory, to our customers, as opposed to kind of having the additional steps that tend to happen when it goes to kind of multiple different supermarkets across the country. So that's really helpful. From a delivery perspective, supermarkets as a general rule are using their own fleet of delivery trucks. And, you know, there are obviously some benefits to that. But there's a major downside, which is it's extremely inefficient to drive between individual customer households, only delivering that one kind of product. And it tends to mean that supermarkets are spending an awful lot of money on that delivery element, whereas our recipe kits are delivered by third-party couriers who are going down that street anyway. So it's much, much more sustainable because you're not putting all these additional vans on the streets and it's much, much more labor and cost efficient. So again, that kind of is a sort of an innovation of this model that means it's much more economical. And then in addition to that, 
right from the start of this business, we have invested in AI and data science and automation to ensure that everything we're doing is efficient, but also building towards being able to give a much better customer experience. And so when you think about how the factory is set out and the way that boxes are routed around the factory, we use data science to make that more efficient. When you think about what customers see when they look on the website, in a similar way to Spotify or Netflix, we are recommending to customers the recipes that are most likely to be right for them, which again, you know, is using AI. And it's those things that can make the customer experience much better, but can also make it much more efficient and economically sustainable. Yeah, that's great. And I love the idea of that personalization. I mean, are customers choosing literally every single meal that they want? Is there ever like it just surprised me? Or are there general like Mediterranean versus, I don't know, Mexican or something like that? Like, how's everything kind of come together from a menu innovation standpoint? Sure. And um, so we currently have 60 different recipes and they change every week. And within that, we have, you know, recipes that are, you know, particularly healthy. They have recipes that are very convenient, say maybe just five minutes to prep and then pop it in the oven. We have lots of different cuisines. So from kind of almost kind of every country that you can imagine, we obviously have some very kind of healthy recipes. So food is very personal, like different people want very different things. And we believe that the only way that you can really kind of service personal needs long term is by continuing to extend that choice. So, you know, currently 60, but in the future, we expect it to be more. And then the choosing experience really pleasant and easy because we're showing you the ones that are relevant for you. And so if, for example, you were vegan, didn't want to spend more than 10 minutes cooking and really didn't like a certain ingredient, you wouldn't need to trawl through hundreds of recipes to find that. You know, we can provide that for you. Yeah, I love that. Tell us a little bit more about the menu innovation as well. I mean, do you guys have professional chefs on staff? Do you have kitchens that are you're constantly going through? Tell us a little bit about what that looks like behind the scenes. Sure. So we have a kitchen on site. We have an amazing team of recipe developers who never cease to amaze me with the incredible recipes that they come up with. I think what's really great about the team is that they can take what seems to be like a standard recipe, so something like spaghetti bolognese, and they can make a version that is so much better than the version that you might cook at home. But they can also, kind of at the other end of the spectrum, create some really new and innovative recipes that, you know, you just simply wouldn't have tried if it weren't for Gusto. You know, customers really do get a real sense of excitement, variety, surprise, but also satisfaction from being able to cook these recipes that they simply wouldn't have cooked without us. Yeah, I love that. And you can see that on the website, right? You look at some of the testimonials, etc. I think that's fun. How much of the recipe innovation comes from the customers themselves? Do you get a lot of feedback or people requesting certain ingredients or certain types of, I don't know, delicacies or something? Yeah, so we get absolutely loads of customer feedback. I think that's one of the great things about our model. So when I think back to look working at Tesco, you know, you certainly like within the stores, you might know that customers had come into the shops and left the shops, but you wouldn't really know what they thought about doing. Whereas we obviously know which recipes they've clicked on and then decided not to add to their basket. But we also know whether they cooked it, when they cooked it, because we have an app. And so we might see that people choose to cook their burgers on Friday night. And all of this information and data is then kind of building up to help us to create a real picture of our customers and be able to better meet the customer needs. Contrast that to, you know, an organization like Unilever, 
Like they're actually having to wait for the supermarket to tell them what the customers are doing. And they still don't know as much information as we have, which makes it much, much faster for us to have an innovation cycle. Yeah, I love that. Maybe going down that path of the technological aspect of it and the app or the website and everything from signing up new customers to retaining them, to following up, to maintaining that relationship with them, to ingesting feedback from them, to the personalization engine. I've got to think there's been a lot of innovation on that front for you over the last five years, six years. You know, Walk us through some of those innovations that you've made and what that's meant for the growth of the business or the innovation around the customer experience. I think that'd be really fascinating to learn about. So, I mean, I think if you'd like go way back to when I joined the business, we had 10 different recipes available in any given week. And so within that, you can imagine there wasn't a huge amount of choice because we didn't really have space for vegan recipes or 10-minute recipes. So it was kind of fairly basic 10 recipes. You can only get them delivered on certain days of the week. It was quite a bit more expensive. And the lead time was quite a bit longer. But over time, we have innovated so that, as I mentioned, we've got 60 different recipes. And as well as having those 60 different recipes, we also allow customers to switch out ingredients. So maybe, you know, change it from a a meat to a vegetarian version or a vegan version. We offer delivery seven days of the week. So you can get it on any day that works for you. Um, And we've reduced the lead times and we've reduced the price. So all of those things obviously improve the experience for our customers, but we're definitely not stopping there. So if you look into the future, there's lots of opportunity to kind of further increase choice, further shorten delivery lead times, you know, further make the product more affordable for more people. So it's a journey and we are only partway through that journey. In terms of kind of, I guess, what we've learned along the way. So we focus very hard on net promoter score, which is the customers that are would recommend us you know, with a very high score of 9 or 10, uh, less those customers who are perhaps less satisfied with the product. And that gives us a really clear indication of whether the changes that we're making are working for our customers. And we know that that correlates very closely with retention. And so when we've made any of these changes, we can see very well what they do um, from a net promoter score perspective. And we also see that flow through into retention. In addition to that, obviously, things have an impact on new customer conversion. So, you know, you can see as you increase the number of recipes, as you shorten the lead times, as you adjust the pricing, um, exactly what happens from a new customer conversion perspective, as well as the retention. And those things all help us really to guide our decisions so that we can prioritize based on the things that are having the biggest customer experience positive factor. Fascinating. In terms of e-commerce specifically, some of the metrics that you mentioned are obviously the types of metrics you would look at every single day, right? In terms of acquiring new customers or retaining customers, again, from looking through that kind of lens of the e-commerce, how are you getting everything from... And I know this isn't totally your domain, probably in the marketing sphere, but you know, how are you getting traffic to the site? How are you getting signups or registrations? Do you get a lot of referral traffic? Do you do a lot of paid advertising? How has the brand grown organically over time? Do you have any, I don't know, celebrity chefs or some other kind of types of ambassadors from a social perspective that are leading? Tell us a little bit more about that kind of go-to-market strategy and how it's evolved over time. Sure. So I think, I mean, in the very early days, like huge amount of A-B testing of lots of different channels, you know, some of which worked and some of which didn't. That was against a backdrop of extremely low brand awareness. And so you were sort of trying to sell cold. 
not just low brand awareness, but low category awareness. So sort of having to like create this kind of awareness of the concept as well as sell why it should be goosedick. Over time, it's evolved a lot such that we now spend a lot more money on brand marketing. So really creating that kind of awareness of what we stand for and helping customers to understand that we can bring variety and inspiration, health, sustainability, such that when they then do see a more kind of targeted marketing ad, they're much more likely to convert to that because they're kind of a warm lead. We have definitely seen a massive shift towards customers then coming directly to us. So actually searching directly for Boostag and also referrals. So the proportion of our sales that are coming effectively like directly to us and organically has grown massively over time as category and then boost of awareness has grown. And that's obviously great because not only is that more efficient, but also those customers tend to be stickier because, you know, if your friend has recommended it to you, for example, you're more likely to be the kind of customer for whom the product really works. Well, one thing we haven't really talked about is what happened during COVID. What happened to the business? You kind of, I guess, after five, six, you know, whatever, I guess at that point, four, three, four years in the business, you were probably fairly well positioned, at least brand-wise, I don't know about infrastructure-wise, to be able to handle all these restaurants closing, people trying to figure out how to get healthy food to their doorstep in a safe way. Walk us through that craziness. What happened to your business? Yeah, so I think what's really interesting is a lot of people kind of have this, I guess, assumption that we would have suddenly grown during COVID yeah. as a result of COVID. But the fact is we were growing very strongly before COVID. We yeah. continued to grow during COVID. And as things have normalized, various periods, we still continue to grow. Because underlying everything are these mega trends, health, sustainability, convenience. Yeah. And we kind of meet those trends. And therefore, we are growing anyway. During the actual, I guess, height of COVID, we for sure could have delivered more boxes had we been able to build more factories more quickly. But the fact is, it's pretty hard to build an automated factory overnight. We did what we could to increase capacity as much as possible, to be able to get as many boxes as possible for those who need. And we, you know, have scaled as fast as we could. But we haven't necessarily had like unnatural COVID growth. You know, we just, we're growing, we continue to grow. And we feel that we're meeting like the long-term needs of our customers rather than a little blip as a result of, you know, that temporary COVID happening. Yeah. Well, as the strategic product leader at the company, who do you consider your competitors? I could think there probably are some other upstarts or other types of players truly in your space. You mentioned, you know, grocery stores are now starting to deliver, not really the same offering, obviously, at all, but potentially, I guess, a, a threat. Help us understand how you think about the competitive landscape. Sure. So I think predominantly, like where we are taking share from is the traditional grocery market. Because that's absolutely massive and that's where most people are shopping. And really they're having a kind of realization like why trek around a supermarket picking out 60 different ingredients to then cook at home and have a load of food waste because that's not in exactly the proportions that you need it. And also the headache of meal planning. If instead you can have the pleasure and joy of like having looking at a website, picking some mouth-watering meals and having that just delivered land on your doorstep. So that's where most of the, I guess, like trade is coming from. In terms of direct competitors, so HelloFresh are like the largest competitor in the UK. They are a similar size to Gusto, but obviously they are international. So kind of larger when you look at their total international footprint. 
And there are kind of a few other smaller players, but generally they tend to be small. And because it's very hard to get food delivery to work and to work profitably, and you know, mentioned earlier some of the challenges, the fact that it's fresh, it's yeah. got to kind of go straight through the supply chain, it can't sit around. Food margins generally are, you know, it's a quite low margin industry. And so you have to be able to do it extremely efficiently to then be able to get margins that are sustainable. What tends to happen is you get new entrants to the market, they kind of last a little while and then they go again. And I think during the time that I've been at Goose Day, I mean, I can't count the number of different new entries that kind of came and then went. And I think that just shows how hard it is to compete in this space. Yeah, I can only imagine. Well, you mentioned about the implicit reduction in food waste because truly you are getting everything you need to do the meal delivered to your doorstep versus potentially buying some stuff you you won't need or you'll only use half of or you know kind of whatever that looks like. Can you talk about I guess food waste as a whole? That's got to be a thing on your mind to reduce, you know, become more efficient as you said. It's got to be some benefit to the customer. I can't imagine how much food waste happens in the grocery business as a whole. You're obviously much closer to that than I am, but what innovations have been made there or how are you as a company thinking through that? So I think when you like look at it compared to the supermarket supply chain, in a supermarket, um, something like 20% of fresh food product will end up being wasted, which is really, really not good for the planet. And that's largely because it sort of gets put on the shelves. And if it's not bought, then obviously it kind of needs to be dealt with. Whereas we use data science and algorithms to predict exactly how much of different ingredients that we need. So we have less than 1% food waste in our factories. Wow. Then once it's bought and goes home to a customer's home, again, in the supermarket supply chain, a huge amount of that gets wasted in customers' homes. So, you know, something like another 20%. And that's because you can't buy one spring onion, even if you only need one spring onion, you have to buy a bunch of spring onions. And you can't buy one teaspoon of a special spice, you have to buy a whole pot. And so again, that's kind of another kind of big shift in food waste through that chain. On top of that, that kind of 1% of potential food waste that we do have in our factories, we have an arrangement with a charity called Fairshare who take any food waste that we do have and they distribute it to charities. And so in the last year or so, we have delivered something like half a million meals through Fairshare to charities and people in need, which means that we're able to have like a really positive impact as well as the actual amount of food waste being much lower to start with. I think um, the other thing to note is from a sustainability perspective, as well as food waste, I think one of the things we're all becoming increasingly aware of is it matters like what you eat. And so the proportion of the meals that you are eating that are meat, you know, and various different proteins. And our model actually makes it much easier for people to try, for example, trying out a new vegan recipe than it perhaps would be if, you know, that's a new scary concept for you. And so we actually sell a higher proportion of vegetarian and vegan proteins than a standard supermarket does. So that kind of, in addition to the food waste, and then I mentioned earlier, the more efficient delivery network means that every box uses 23% less carbon than the equivalent shop in a supermarket. So yeah, all really, really positive impacts on the planet. Oh, I love that. Help us understand maybe some of the trends that you've seen and been able to capitalize on. And maybe as you're doing that, thinking through, I don't know, some of the maybe surprises. Like, I guess 
the cool thing about some of this is that it probably helps you to actually eat easier. Like it's not just on demand. I can't just order my whatever Ben and Jerry's ice cream at 3 a.m. on a Friday or something like that. Like it's pretty prescriptive and programmatic. So I've got to think that helps with everything from just cravings to impulse buys to to just other stuff like that. I love the convenience that you guys have focused on. Any other big trends that you kind of been able to capitalize on that you think are working really well for your customers or trends that you see again in the data science or in the data that kind of surprise you? I love that trend around like more people trying vegan or vegetarian type protein options than in than a normal supermarket. Any other really interesting things there? Sure. So, I mean, I think the main sort of trends that we tend to think about are health, convenience, and sustainability. So, from a health perspective, like we are unquestionably seeing kind of an increasing awareness around consumers about what they eat and a desire to eat more healthily. And the very nature of cooking from scratch is much healthier than going out and getting a pre made meal that will have a whole load of stuff in it that you kind of don't know what it is. And so, that in itself is really helpful for consumers. And we are able to kind of make that much easier for them by having, you know, the sort of, I guess, quicker alternatives. The one thing I would say, though, is that whilst consumers might say they want healthy, it doesn't stop them picking the burgers. So what we do try to do is help them to have, I guess, healthier versions of dishes, which have still got all of the same taste. So over time, you know, reducing salt, reducing fat and making sure that the meals are as balanced as possible. I think the next one, convenience. So everybody is just so busy and you know they need time. And I think quite often people end up cooking a ready meal because they think they haven't got time to cook from scratch. But we've actually got like a great selection of meals that are you know five-minute prep, a bit of chopping, pop it in the dish, put it in the oven, all 10-minute speedy options. And you know when it's that quick, it really does mean that you can eat a healthy meal from scratch in the time really that it takes you to order a takeaway or put something that's pre-made in the oven. And then finally, you know, sustainability. And we've obviously talked a little bit about that. I think on the surprise front, it's interesting the extent to which whilst customers, you know, do come for adventure and excitement, they also do really want those staple recipes. So things like spaghetti bolognese, which we actually have on the menu every single week because it's a tastier version. It's a well-priced version and it's a healthy version. So, you know, why not have the convenience of having all the ingredients uh, there for you? Even if you, in theory, know how to cook it, you probably don't know how to put one that is as delicious as the one that we do. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Sally, this has been an amazing journey. We've covered a lot of ground in the last, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes, something like that. Anything that stands out as an area we haven't covered before we kind of wind this down and an area that you think would be interesting for listeners to think about or innovate in their own careers or or any other aspect that we haven't really covered? Yeah, I mean, I think from the perspective of like career innovation, I do think it's too easy to like just keep doing the same, same thing. And as we and lives get longer, I really think that to spend all 40, 50 years of your career doing the same thing is not the kind of, I guess, most stimulating or fulfilling thing to do. So, you know, I would massively recommend people taking opportunities or making opportunities to kind of try doing something different. And I think particularly at the moment where kind of new areas, so things like product are emerging, the number of opportunities in those areas are so significant compared to what they used to be. So it's definitely always good to embrace. Yeah, I love it. 
Well, what can we expect from an innovation standpoint? You probably can't you know, reveal too much, but tell us a little bit about what you're excited about that's happening in the industry where you're trying to push the organization or the product from your perspective. What can we get excited about? Yes, I mean, I think you continue to see more health, more convenience, more sustainability. Um, but the key thing that we really want to provide our consumers is choice. So the opportunity to make the choices that are right for them. And so that comes with an expanding menu and increased opportunities to be able to kind of switch things so that they're right for the individual and also a very personalized approach so that if what you care about is sustainability, then you can order your recipes by what's the carbon footprint. If what you care about is health and you know, you're counting your calories, then you can order it that way. And I think that combination of choice and then personalization is going to be hugely powerful for our customers. I love it. Well, best of luck to you. Congratulations on building such a great business. Congratulations on having such an awesome career. And thank you so much for spending some time with us today, everyone. This is Sally Maps from Gusto, Chief Product Officer. And I hope to catch you again on a future show. No problem. Lovely to speak. All right. Take care. Thanks. 